Good morning. It is Monday, April 6th, and this is Community Pulse, KOPN's grassroots report on the coronavirus outbreak in mid-Missouri. On Friday, Missouri Governor Mike Parson announced a statewide stay-at-home order, this coming after many weeks of pressure from citizens to implement such an order and take the outbreak more seriously. The order, which takes effect today, says Missourians should avoid leaving their homes except for essential activities like work, obtaining food, or medical care. Businesses that are not considered essential in the order may remain open, but must comply with social gathering and social distancing requirements of the order. This means no more than 10 individuals can occupy a single space, including both employees and customers. Individuals must also remain at least six feet of distance uh, between themselves and others. And of course, they must practice good hygiene and sanitation to limit the spread of COVID-19. The full stay-at-home order and all its detail can be found on the web at governor.mo.gov. I encourage everyone to go check that out. Um, There are a lot of details that provide some clarification and frequently asked questions and that sort of thing. Joining me this morning, as usual, is Dr. Elizabeth Alleman, local family physician. Also on the line with us is guest Sarah Williams, social worker with a background in community planning and preparedness. Good morning, Elizabeth and Sarah. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. Thank you for uh, doing this, Tim, and thank you to our listeners for joining us. Yeah, um, of course. L- let's uh, let's begin with the numbers, and then I think we're going to sure. get into some listener questions soon after that. Yeah, we are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so right now we've got over a million cases in the world, and Africa and uh, the Indian subcontinent are very worrisome. These are large populations of people, many of whom uh uh, depend for their evening meal on the work that they can do and the money they can make that day. And so having them not congregate and stay home is almost impossible. Um, and it's in a global pandemic that we realize how um, allowing this kind of poverty long term endangers all of us. But I'm going to try to limit my political commentations if comment commentary if I can. Anyway, so it's hard to believe that 1 million number, and it's probably 10 to 20 times that high. Anyway, 60,000 deaths documented in the world. And again, as things move through uh, countries where um, there are a lot of people who live at some distance from uh, government and healthcare um, interventions and help, we just really aren't going to know what the numbers are. Uh, 239,000 recovered. I love seeing that number come up. In the United States, we have about we have about 278,000 cases, uh, 7,000 deaths, and 20,000 recovered. Testing is increasing in the United States, but it's way behind what would be optimal. And we're still only testing uh, people with symptoms, even though we know that people who don't have any symptoms can spread the disease either before or after they've been sick or people who are just never really going to get sick. Missouri has um, a little bit over 2,000 cases. We've had 37 deaths and seven recovered. And in Boone County, um, I'm pulling that up again. I think we're at like 76 cases and still just the one death. Um, and in Missouri, 68% of our counties have at least one positive uh, test. And with the lack of testing, especially in some of these uh, more rural communities, I don't think we can presume that just because you haven't seen a test turn positive that um, 
that's not happening in your state. Some of these uh, counties are totally surrounded by counties with a positive case. And we know that um, increasingly rural uh, Missourians need to travel um, out of their county often for basics like groceries and health care. So uh, it's just really hard to believe that that hasn't happened or it's not going to happen, you know, this week. And I um, am hoping that those people uh, will still stay home and follow the governor's orders. Um, and so then let's get into questions, Tim. Yeah, let's do it. The one that came last week sure. um, is um, from someone who said it was okay to use her name. So our dear Rena Ruth uh, uh, is asking questions about herself and her husband, Lee, um, about whether their their daughter can come and garden with them. Uh, they're outside. They plan on staying six feet apart, uh, but their daughter lives with her. Their granddaughter lives with her mother. And I say that wrong. It's the granddaughter that wants to come the garden. Yeah, and the the granddaughter lives with her mother, who I think is a healthcare professional and works in a fairly high risk for contact area. And so, you know, these are the kinds of questions that families are having to address. You know, our our elders are all dear to us and so valuable. Um, those two are particularly valuable to the KOPN community. Um, when I envision our future on the other side of this, um, I hope that it includes both of them still contributing in that rich and beautiful way that the two of them do. But I'm sure that they're most valuable and most beloved by their own families. And and what you know, what value do we have for elders that's greater than passing on their wisdom and making memories with their grandchildren? This is just such a beautiful interaction, especially I'm such a believer in um, garden education and gardening as a as a beautiful activity, hands in the dirt. And so good for our mental health and our physical health. I mean, there's so many things about this that are beautiful. And we're all familiar with, yeah, if you have to interact with anybody outside and, and six feet apart if you can. But the other part of our recommendation is that we limit all of these interactions to essential activities. And while I think gardening is pretty essential, gardening with your grandchild is not essential. So the official recommendation is that, oh, um, we would not we would not go visit our elders and sit in the driveway six feet apart so that we could have some social interaction. We would we would do those those visits virtually. You know, I am seeing my patients virtually, so even a an essential in, interaction like healthcare, I'm doing as much as I can of that over the phone and um, virtually. And you know, there's a few things I. I, I am a person who um, releases tongue ties and newborns. I can't do that over the phone. Um, every once in a while, I really do need to listen to somebody's lungs or look in an ear, and I can't do that over the phone e- either. So, um, uh, although somebody sent me a, a link to some virtual stethoscope, I'm so excited I'm oh, going to wow. check it out. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, I, you know, we, we ought to all be doing everything we can to figure out how we can do all of our activities. Um, at as far a distance as possible, um, and that um, as much as I love the idea of grandparents gardening with their grandchildren, at this point, um, I am I'm going to recommend that that not be an activity. Um, and similar ones, people are talking about. Oh well, I go for a walk with my friend, but we stay six feet apart. And I was doing that for a while too, and I have gotten to the point where now I put some earbuds in and I call my friend and I walk. Um, at a real distance from my friend. Um, and I have found that I actually walk a little faster and um, get very animated in my conversation when I am not um, with the person. But I, 
you know, there's a lot of big emotions, and I often want to shout really loud, and I know that that increases the aerosol that comes out of my mouth. Yeah, yeah. yeah so these are difficult decisions that that we're going to have to be making. You know, I would love to have a meal with friends and family right now, but I know that it's really not feasible. You know, I would love to right. hug one of them, and but oh, right. These are the, these I are mean, the decisions that we're having to make right now for our right. safety. Right, and we're you know what's coming down the road is um, trying to figure out how do we celebrate the um, milestones in life? I'm hearing a friend of mine who, in their circle, a teen has died, I think unrelated to COVID, but a sad, tragic thing. And her teens were good, are good friends with this young woman. And um, so they had a funeral with, where everybody stayed in their cars and um, uh, decorated their cars with um, positive signs and balloons and such. And you know, we're going to have to figure out how to do funerals and weddings and uh, welcoming the newborn without um, actually getting in proximity with to each other. And, yeah, um, we're going to have to get creative, that's for sure. Get creative. And, and it, I understand these things are hard. I, we are at, I am asking people, like I've said before, to do really, really hard things so that our doctors and healthcare workers in the hospitals and first responders don't have to do the horrific things. And we're going to limit the number of funerals we do in, uh, in the next couple of months. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Any other questions, Tim? I did not receive any other listener questions over the okay. weekend. So um, I'm really glad Sarah's joining us. Thanks for, we've been sort of ignoring you, Sarah, but I want to bring you in because I've been getting questions or comments on Facebook about quarantine, isolation, asymptomatic shedding. Um, How do we do all of that? What do those terms mean? And so, Sarah, do you want to start with that? Certainly. So those are great Great questions and and words that we're hearing a whole lot of. Um, For sure, if anyone is uncertain, they can go to cdc.gov and uh, query isolation and quarantine. But essentially, isolation is to separate or isolate from others, Um, originally intended to separate sick people with a contagious disease from those who are not sick. Whereas quarantine, in fact, is a definition of time and location. Uh, So a state or a period of isolation, um, quarantine separates and restricts the movement of people who were or could have been exposed to a contagious disease to see if they become sick. Um, So the two are similar but different. Um, more specific one is is more a definition of time and space at this point in time as frustrating as this is especially for those of us who may or may not have been exposed that have no symptoms especially if we've been exposed and do not have symptoms it is an investment in not only our future but our family and friends future Um, challenging as it is something to hopefully approach with grace and confidence and if possible joy because it is something we can do because so many of us feel so powerless. That's so well said, Sarah. Thank you so much. Um, I I think also those words get um, used. Like I had somebody, one of my friends on Facebook said that she was in day whatever of quarantine and I was like, 
wait, are you really quarantining or are you just using that word to describe what you're doing? So all of us are doing social isolation or we're staying at home. And um, the idea is that we can interact freely with our the other members of our household. Um, I mean, there are people who, be, who because of their work and what they do during the day, they go to, they work in a grocery store, they work in a pharmacy, they work in a hospital where they are, you know, presuming they've been contact, you know, it, it, there, there are many variations, but excluding those people, most of us are really doing shelter at home or um, social distancing. And the, the isolation, once a person is sick, then we would have, we would have them not be in contact if we could with their other household members. So they would be in a bedroom by themselves. Ideally, if if possible, they would have a bathroom to themselves. If not, there would need to be some extra bathroom hygiene. They would not leave the room. Um, Ideally, there would be a window open in the room so the family did not share the same air. Luckily, we've got springtime right now, so that's possible if you don't have terrible allergies. and that uh, food and beverages and medicines would be delivered to the door, um, that any sort of checking in on them as far as how they're doing would be done, you know, by cell phone or by peeking in the door and asking them. You would not be um, going into the room to, you know, provide them extra comfort if they were medically stable Um, and that you wouldn't share a bedroom with them and those kinds of things. And that's isolation. It's pretty strict and it's much stricter than what most of us are doing. And then quarantine, most family members are sort of exposed together. So they often quarantine together, but then those people have other people bring things to them. So they would not even be going out for healthcare visits or for, um, for groceries or other essentials. So the quarantined and the isolated would be doing one step more restriction than the people who are the rest of us who are being uh, doing social distancing. Um, So, uh, and then the question is how long do those things need to be? And because we're using those terms very nonspecifically in general parlance, and I am not trying to be any kind of a uptight person about that, but I want to be very careful when I use it. So isolation, that is if you're sick, needs to be and, – and the best information I could get was actually from the Colorado Department of Health and Environment. Um, and they are very clear about how to isolate, and uh, what they're saying is um, – Isolation should stay away from others until uh, they have no fever for at least 72 hours, three full days of no fever without using a medicine that reduces fever. Other symptoms have significantly improved, and at least seven days have passed since your symptoms first appeared. And what we think is in those first seven days, what's happening is your, your body is making antibodies, and the antibodies are beginning to clear the virus from your nose so that you can't cough it out or spray it out quite as much. Now... There are people who are shedding virus for much longer than that. Some are, you know, 40 to 50 days documented. And it's my understanding so far in the case reports I'm reading is all of those people were sick that long. So they persisted in a fever and a cough and they felt lousy all that time or they got a little bit better and got a little bit worse. So um, so isolation is for seven days from the onset of illness plus three days without symptoms, whichever one is longer. Um, and then quarantine, we're, we're wanting to know what's the incubation period. So that's the period of time from the time you were exposed to the time that you developed the symptoms. 
And we think it's around the time you develop symptoms from three days before, that's the tricky part, to three days after where you are likely to infect others. And so we'd like for you to stay away from everybody else until we're sure you're past that window. And that we believe the the safe duration is 14 days. Now, are we going to find that there's some people that should have been in for 21 days? Yes. But we just really in public health have to do what we think is the most common and then add a little window of certainty. Otherwise, we're going to quarantine everybody forever. So, um, So that's isolation seven days uh, from the onset of symptoms plus three days without fever and all symptoms are recovering and quarantine is 14 days. So, um, and then all the rest of us are doing social isolate, social distancing, which is um, until we're told that we can stop. Okay. Yeah. Even, even with clear instructions like that, I'm trying to imagine if I was at home with a mild case and I had to decide for myself when my symptoms stopped. Right. Maybe when they started and, you know, it's it's not always clear. If you're not clear, that's when um, contacting your primary health care professional, um, your uh, people can contact me. I do charge my services when I'm doing this kind of work. The public health department, um, another health professional um, is going to be very helpful. and again, we are all functioning out of not being sure exactly how this works because it's it's a novel coronavirus, which means it's new and none of us know for sure. And in another year, when it's too late for us to make our decisions now, we'll probably know a whole lot more. So, yeah, better to make those conservative decisions now. Mm-hmm. Anything that you feel like we ought to add to that, Sarah? Well, I would um, wonder if you could speak just briefly on the definition of a fever, what's a fever, and then follow up with um, no fever without the assistance of medication. Can you define that, please? Yeah, so a fever to medical people is 100.5 Fahrenheit or higher, Um, and or 38 degrees centigrade, whichever one, whichever uh, scale you're using. And um, what we know is that if you take uh, fever reducers like uh, Tylenol or acetaminophen or Advil or ibuprofen or <clears throat> anything else that's a design or aspirin, please don't take aspirin right now. We're not sure whether this virus acts like influenza and can uh, I, aspirin could be dangerous for some people with the, with viruses like this. Um, that is going to reduce your fever, and that does not count as not having a fever. So you need to be six hours out of your, out from your six to eight hours, probably eight hours out from your last dose of anything that could reduce a fever before you can say, "Yep, I don't have a fever anymore." Um, so yeah, was that did I answer your question, Sarah, or was there another part? Well said. That's exactly what I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. Now, there are some people who, because of autoimmune disorders or thyroid disease, run around with a low baseline temperature. And what they want to do about deciding when they have fever is um, it's, it is an, un, an inexact science, but I would say that um, you need to be um, within a degree of your a degree Fahrenheit of your baseline temperature for you to be considered that you don't have a fever. Um, and, and you know, again, it's difficult because people with autoimmune disorders are um, they can have fever for other reasons or elevated temperature for other reasons. So it, it can be a little tricky. But um, yeah, that 
That's what I want to say about that. I also want to say really shortly, and I'm going to see if I can find somebody to come in and talk to us about case definition and whether we're overcounting or undercounting. Some of my um, acquaintances and friends on Facebook are very concerned that because we are testing people who have died, so we're testing the, the dead for COVID, for the presence of this coronavirus, and then we're coding those deaths. If they turned positive, we're coding those deaths as COVID-associated. So even people who die in a – and I don't know that this is going on uniformly, but even people who say drown or die in a car accident, um, we're, trying to, we're trying to not miss any cases. And so there are some people who are concerned that we're vastly overcounting cases. And I just want to know that it's really that public health officials have thought this through – are they making exactly the decisions I would or you would? I don't know. But what we want to do is not miss cases and not miss patterns that might be surprising to us by not collecting the data. But remember that there's the, you know, died, uh, that COVID was your primary cause of death, and that is pretty clear. People who are on a ventilator, positive for COVID, we're going to say, yep, you died from COVID. And then, um, People who died of another cause, those are going to be called COVID-associated deaths, and those are going to be looked at in a different way. Um, and there's some interesting stuff where it looks like pneumonia death rates are de decreasing in, in the United States, and I don't know how to think about that, but that it's my understanding that they are not decreasing enough to explain the increase in deaths we are seeing from COVID. But these are... These are subtle arguments, and I don't think that anybody who is an epidemiologist and looking at these numbers believes that somehow this COVID disease is not happening and that it's a hoax and that it's being overblown. So I'm just, I just felt like I wanted to um, talk about that. So later this week, I hope to have somebody on, hopefully Jenny Chadwick, about ideal stay-at-home orders. I'm looking for somebody to talk about um, death counts and case definition. Um, yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much. Uh, once again, joining us today was Dr. Elizabeth Alleman and Sarah Williams. So thank you so much to Sarah and Elizabeth. Thank you so much, Tim, and I'll talk to you tomorrow. All righty. Thank you. Bye. That's it for today's edition of Community Pulse, KOPN's grassroots report on the coronavirus outbreak here in Mid-Missouri. We thank you so much for tuning in to KOPN every morning. You can catch us here at 9 a.m. for the coronavirus report. Also, stay tuned for all of our wonderful programming. Of course, Democracy Now! coming up next. Background briefing followed by Fresh Air and then again the rebroadcast of Democracy Now! at noon. We can't forget all of the wonderful music that we have all afternoon and evening. Stay tuned later today from 3 to 6 p.m. for a new edition of The Real Deal Country Show. Woody's producing his program from home, and uh, it's, it's just as good as it ever was. So please tune in for The Real Deal Country Show from 3 to 6 p.m. later this afternoon. Thanks again for listening, and we will catch you next time.